Welcome to another episode of In the Name of Service, a podcast committed to sharing the untold stories of those who selflessly serve. Each episode features an interview with men and women who have been called to a variety of service-focused roles, such as the military, law enforcement, ministry, volunteering, and more. You aren't likely to know the names of the individuals you meet here, but our hope is by the end of our time together, you'll not only know their stories, but possibly be inspired to write your own in some way. Humble in nature, but strong in character, these everyday men and women showcase what it is to truly be a servant. We're glad you're here. Now here's your host, Dr. Barb Thompson. Thank you so much for joining me today for another inspiring episode of In the Name of Service. I'm your host, Dr. Barb Thompson. As a United States Army veteran and operational psychologist, I've spent the past 12 years working directly with military and law enforcement units, conducting in-depth interviews with hundreds of individuals who are hoping to earn their place on high-risk, high-performing teams. In most cases, they've already put in years of grueling physical and mental work just to get the chance to serve and sacrifice more. That type of selflessness is special, and I feel worthy of recognition. While each person's story is unique and every path to service different, their goals are similar, to do something more, to be part of something bigger, and to make a difference. These difference makers were the catalysts behind this podcast, and it's my privilege to share their stories with you. So today, I have the privilege of speaking with Christine Conley. Christine, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. If you will, you've got a very cool history, more than 12 years serving in the Navy and all kinds of neat organizations you've been a part of since your time as a quote unquote civilian. Take us through you know, your history and background and, and just tell us more about yourself. Well, again, thank you for, for having me and thank you for what you're doing because I, I think it's so... I used to discount the power of story. And it really has become more uh, clear as, as time goes on, just the power of story um, and giving people that um, ability to connect with their own stories. So thank you for what you're doing. So I grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area. Um, I was the oldest of four girls. On the outside, my family life looked normal for the beginning years. Um, as time went on, um, there was, my mother suffered from um, a number of different um, mental illnesses, and that became more obvious as time went on. Um, I went to about five different elementary schools. By the time that uh, I hit sixth grade, we had been moved from school to school because uh, Child Protective Services kept getting called due to, you know, signs of abuse of neglect. And so I'm not going to, you know, completely give my age here. But back then, I'll say, if you said that you were homeschooling back then for religious reasons, then um, there wasn't really a whole lot of follow up. So we were pulled out of school, um, said that we were homeschooling. And my mother actually sent me to work cleaning houses under the table. So that was pretty much uh, my life from about um, sixth grade until about 17 years old, which is when I ran away, I was able to um, locate our father, and we were able to get my younger sisters out of that environment. You know, very traumatic upbringing, a lot of violence, a lot of upheaval, a lot of secrecy. And 
when I was 17, and was able to get out of that environment. I was able to get my sisters out of that environment. Then it was, okay, now what? Because I had lived so much of my life at that, you know, complete just survival. Right. You know, how to assess, you know, how to, how to not, um, you know, provoke violence or, you know, um, protect my sisters. And I did have a lot of, I was carrying a lot of guilt for not being able to protect my sisters. Um, so I had that, you know, already instilled that, that wanting to protect others, wanting to, um, also make up for not being able to protect them. I actually worked in the music business for about a decade. Um, I got out um, and I was looking just to be able to do what I could to not deal with my childhood. I wanted to have nothing to do with that. That did not define me. I wasn't going to deal with it. Now I'm out. And what am I going to do now? So I started off um, just as a stagehand, ended up doing, um, you know, concert lighting, and then lived more or less, uh, you know, on and off the road, uh, doing concert lighting, did some tour management um, for about a decade. And that was the perfect environment for me to not have to deal with, you know, with my past. It was like, literally, you know, live hard, live fast, live right. loud. Always something and new, always a different city. Yeah, just on the go. Completely. And it was like that perfect environment for me to just, you know, not going to deal with any of that stuff. It was great. And then 9-11 happened. And I realized that that kind of lifestyle was probably not sustainable in the long, you know, for the long term. And it really impacted me because I started to ask those Mm -hmm. questions. You know, what, what is the purpose of my Mm -hmm. life? What am Mm -hmm. I doing? So I, uh, I'd always been interested in the medical field. I went to the recruiter's office. I'd been, you know, I had some contact with a few uh, military um, and veteran, military folks and veterans, and honestly didn't know a whole lot about the military. I knew that I wanted to be a corpsman or work in the medical field in some, you know, form or fashion. I didn't have a, you know, college degree. Um, you know, I ran when I ran away at 17, there wasn't that option to go back to high school because I missed so much school. So I'd gotten my GED. Yeah. I went to the Navy recruiter, said, Hey, I want to be a corpsman. They're like, Yeah, no, <laughs> we need males to go FMF to go with the Marines. You're not doing that. But we have this great job that just opened up to, you know, you can come in on entry and you're going to be working with dogs and, you know, all the excitement. And I'm like, Oh, perfect. And it ended up being master at arms. And, you know, what do they say? Don't trust the right. recruiter because the next thing you know, I'm standing on a gate checking IDs and it was not what they told me. Where are all the dogs? <laughs> what is happening? Like, I don't even know. But so that was that was how I ended up joining. Wow. And did you have anyone guiding you in that process or was it all self-guided, self-directed? Oh, it was completely just, you know, showing up and... Sure, that sounds good. That, you know, yeah, no, there wasn't a whole lot of direction. And, you know, I remember talking to the recruiter because, okay, you're going to be master at arms, or, you know, you're going to do this. And they had offered me a few other things. And I told them with that wait time, I said, look, if you make me wait, I'm going to change my mind. Um, So you either need to, you know, get me into something or that's it. See you later. Wow. Okay. Well, something exactly. about it worked, I think, because you 
you served more than 12 years. Is that right? Yes. So, you know, going in pretty much blind. Right. Um, you know, I was 27 when I joined. So my experience was not that of a, a number of my peers that I was that I was coming in with. I loved the structure. Mm -hmm. I loved that things were clearly spelled out. I knew that if I just showed up and I, you know, did what I needed to do that, you know, there was advancement, there was, you know, structure to a certain extent. And that's something that I had never really had right. in my life. You know, if I served in, in Washington state, that was my first duty station. Um, and then went to uh, Bahrain and that's where I started working in investigations in Washington state. And what was really interesting was, and this is something that I'll touch on later because, you know, the, where I work now really focuses on that science of post-traumatic growth. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time, but my proclivity towards investigations, I was really good at showing up to scenes and being able to see what was, you know, beneath the surface. Right. Well, it's no wonder. And, and I had no idea, you know, just, yeah. Okay. You know, show up at a, you know, child neglect, child abuse, um, you know, domestic violence, whatever it might be. And it was, you know, long after the fact, but I realized that my ability to, you know, follow cases and have that case solve rate was because I had spent my whole life watching and being able to study people because, you know, if I, if I was able to gauge, you know, what was going to set my mother off, right. then I could, you know, look for those little signs that, that would, you know, circumnavigate that. So I had spent my whole life training for this. And I'm not saying, you know, in any way saying that that was a good or healthy way to grow mm -hmm. up. But it was because of that, that gave me that ability to, um, you know, see what was below, you know, beneath the surface and, uh, and thereby helping, helping others in, in, a, in a way. Um, so I did investigations, went to Bahrain, um, really worked in a lot of like human trafficking, and uh, some other fun stuff there went from there to um, <laughs> and I tell people because people ask me, you know, oh, you're Navy, you, you should know about Navy things. And I am not the right person to ask about uh, the typical Navy experience because I was assigned to one ship. I was assigned to the uh, USS Carl Vinson, which is a uh, aircraft carrier. And I was assigned there for two years. And never once did I float anywhere. <laughs> I went on the ship a few times, but it Dock in Newport News, and I had an office in an office building outside of the shipyard, and that was pretty much where my shipboard quote unquote time was was spent. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> looking back on it now, I mean, I just want to keep listening to wherever you're going because I feel like you have about one million stories you could tell. But what now? You know, several years post your military service, what stands out as having been your most meaningful experience during that period of time? Oh, gosh, you know, trying to narrow it down. So from the ship, I went to um, the schoolhouse, I did high risk construction. And from there, um, that's where I went. Um, for the Navy, we called it individual augmentee going IA. And I went to uh Iraq and Afghanistan under that. I would say probably one of the most defining moments was 
Probably in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't want to say there was any particular one defining moment, but it was like that space and yeah. time. I was, you know, I started off, I was um, attached to uh, one of the SEAL teams. And then from there was pushed out to, um, it used to be called uh, Firebase Cobra. Um, it's in the National Geographic uh, short, um, the Green Berets. And that's when I was part attached to a ODA team. You know, you really have to, it showed me how you really have to earn your place on those high performing teams. Mm-hmm. And it's not, mm-hmm. given. nothing is given. It ha- and how did you do that as an outsider? <laughs> well, you know, in Iraq, um, that was also under um, the SODIF, under uh, the SEAL teams. And it was show up. You just show up, you work your butt off, um, and, and you observe, you don't just drop it and assume that you're going to be, you know, accepted. Mm-hmm. You observe. And I think that goes for, you know, you go travel, you go anywhere, you observe the culture, you see, you know, what the um, the environment is, and then you find out where you can provide value right. and, you know, if uh, where, where you'd be a good fit. And... It was, again, in Afghanistan, I think, that it became so clear that, you know, when when the stuff hits the fan, that it really is about the person on your left and mm-hmm. your right. And I saw that, and the power of a small team and about communication and all those things that I was able to take and, you know, use those lessons later on in life. And that, you know, it was such a, I, I never, you know, to, to that level of, of, of closeness, of cohesion, of teamwork, and being able to observe that. And then coming back. So 2011, I came back and from, from that deployment, and it ended up being my last deployment mm-hmm. because I had sustained a number of injuries. And it was, you know, now all of a sudden I'm getting surgeries. And that was when, for the first time in my life, I really just had to stop yeah. because I physically had right. to stop getting surgeries. I'm in a wheelchair. I'm doing all these things. And that was when on the outside, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything is fine. But I was, you know, looking for somebody else that had an experience like me because I came back and I wasn't part of that right. team anymore. I was an individual augment team. I was sent back, you know, to the schoolhouse. Now I'm getting these surgeries. Nobody, you know, has shared these experiences with me. All the folks that I had been with were in Washington State or down in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I'm in Virginia. And, you know, I I really also, you know, learned to embrace my gosh, you know, what about the the reservists or the National Guardsmen or all those folks that, you know, are just activated for a short period of time and then have to go back and assimilate into... Right, totally isolated from the... Folks that had no idea. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. Also, you know, even talking about transition. And so that is when I I think I hit my rock bottom was not knowing what was going on with me, you know, trying to pretend that everything was fine during the day. And then at night, I'd be Googling, you know, looking for somebody else that had any kind of story or experience like me. And I didn't find it. Yeah. And that was, again, like just talking about the power of story. If I could have found, I think just somebody that had some of those same experiences, I wouldn't have felt so alone. Right. Um, and I think, you know, that's just, you know, that, that freight train that all of a sudden had to stop 
And now I'm having to deal with all of my stuff to start from back in childhood, you know, and all these, you know, things that I compartmentalized so well, I thought was, all right, we're here, you've stopped, and you're going to deal with us now. And that petrified me. And so as I'm Googling and, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, who, you know, what do you do in these circumstances? I don't know what's going on. You know, I, I started drinking, you know, I, first it was, you know, a glass of wine to, you know, just, you know, relax me so I could finally get some sleep to, you know, hey, this isn't working anymore. I'm just, you know, I can't sleep because I would lay down and then all the things were like, hey, we didn't go anywhere. As a matter of fact, we've gotten bigger and now you're going to deal with us. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not. So, you know, that turned to, you know, to drinking, you know, heavier. And I finally hit that rock bottom. Um, I almost became a statistic. Um, I had a plan of how to end my own life. And the only reason I didn't was because if I had done that, I would have left my daughter, um, who I had, you know, she, unfortunately, um, her father and I divorced when she was two. And so I'm the only parent in her life. And now she's, you know, seven, eight, nine years old during that period of, you know, me figuring all this out. And if I would have done that, she would have had no one. And she had already been, you know, sent to live with family and friends while I was deployed. Um, and now I'm going to leave her like that. So that, you know, I'm grateful for that because I might not be here today if it was not for that. I knew that the Fleet and Family Service Center, you know, they had people who helped. I got to that point where I knew I was, I, I, you know, that I, something needed to give. And so I literally just walked into that Fleet and Family Service Center. I went to the lady at the front desk. She's like, may I help you? I'm like, I need help. And I just completely right, broke down. Right. Um, <laughs> just, I, I had nothing left to, you know, just, it, it was, I'd reached the end of my rope. And, you know, they got me in back. Oh my gosh, you know, we're having a crisis. Got me into the clinic, you know, immediately, um, you know, got me to see the psychiatrist. And I'm very grateful for that at that time, because as low as I was, I'm very grateful that, you know, the medic, you know, I was on medication, seeing the psychiatrist, seeing the therapist, and it definitely got me to where I was able to cope again. Yeah. What do you think kept you from reaching out earlier? I think shame, Hmm. Um, embarrassment. I had, you know, I had had a pretty successful career, you know, made E6 in five years through just determination, grit and hard work. I had had a pretty successful career and to admit that I, what I felt at the time was admitting weakness was probably one of my greatest fears. Like I don't have the answers. I don't have it figured out. I need help. Um, and I, I think I was just petrified even of saying, I mm-hmm. need help. What would that mean? Yeah. Take you down an unknown path. Yeah. Because, you know, and maybe it's also possible that because for so long, I did not have control. Mm. And so to me, having control of things meant that, you know, if I've planned, you know, A, B, C, D, you know, point one, two, three, all the plans, then sure, I might have to, you know, rebalance, but I'm going to be okay. Nothing is going to catch me completely off guard. And 
I think that I equated asking for help with letting go of mm-hmm. all control. Mm-hmm. And that and that petrified me because once I had regained what I thought was control, I didn't want to mm-hmm. let it go. So how did you end up turning it around? I mean, you mentioned that those services definitely helped um, to keep you afloat at that time. Yes. So and I think you said it beautifully just now. I was afloat. You know, I wasn't drowning anymore, but still not a lot of direction. I found out, you know, I was, I was doing okay, but I was still getting all these surgeries. Um, I was averaging about one or two surgeries a year. And I had, I did not realize at the time, but I had sustained a number of uh, traumatic brain injuries, TBIs. And, you know, while the immediate concern, okay, so, um, you know, I'm on the medications, I'm not a, you know, a danger to myself anymore. Um, You know, not the, you know, the mood swings and things like that. But what would um, be my, my new challenge is, you know, I'd be driving to work, same, you know, route that I'd taken forever. And all of a sudden, I end up in North Carolina. And I'm like, how the heck did I get here? There's, you know, a particular, um, you know, inter- intersection where, you know, there's a couple of clover leaves in Virginia Beach, getting onto the freeway. And, you know, I've taken this for, for years. And then all of a sudden, if I'm not locked on using GPS, I'm circling a couple times. And I'm like, what the heck? And that scared the heck out of me. So I started trying to, you know, to, to get that, um, you know, figured out, was finally able to get get that answer. But it wasn't until I was actually, it had already been determined, look, you're not getting any younger, you're still getting these surgeries. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's going to be medical retirement. Yeah. So I was going through that process at the same time and was actually able to get that figured out where I had sustained uh, a couple TBIs. I was lucky enough to be able to go to uh, Walter Reed um, to NICO, which is a fantastic yes. program if you are still active yes. duty, uh, intrepid center of excellence. I go through that program, which was fantastic. Very grateful for that because it answered mm-hmm. a lot of questions. Um, and sometimes even just knowing the why is, is right. huge. So that was very helpful. And then it was, okay, now medical retirement. Now what? Right. Yeah. Here you had this and, really successful career, like something you felt like you were in total control of, something you were naturally good at, promoted. Like all of that feels really, really good. And you, you found some teams that you gelled with more than other groups in your life. That's a lot to leave behind. Yes. And, you know, especially after having felt some of that before with, um, you know, coming back from that last deployment and being separated from the team. Now it was complete, you know, separation. You know, what do I do now? For so long, the military had given me that structure, given me that purpose, had given me those roots, if you will. And, now, now what do I do? So before, right before I had gotten out, I had started looking at different nonprofits, different, um, you know, ways of, of continuing to try to cope. And I started volunteering with those. So after I got out, you know, went ahead, finished my degree, and was volunteering with all these different nonprofit organizations. 
Then I ended up working for a couple of them. And that provided me with a number, you know, just just that feeling of belonging again, feeling of purpose. And I still struggled with taking care of myself. So because I had never really been taught on how to take care of myself and instead take care of others, I was, you know, I I wouldn't say I was ineffective, but as far as being sustainable and not feeling burnt out, Mm -hmm. I would throw everything into helping everybody else because I didn't want somebody else to slip through the cracks like I felt like I had on a, a few occasions. So that became my new purpose, but I still hadn't figured out how to take care of myself. Well, when did that come along or is it still in progress? And how do you do that? (laughs) How do you take care of yourself? Is that the question? Yeah. I mean, I think I've talked to several people who have had to learn that same concept and it looks a little bit different for everyone. So you are, you're in a position now where you're still like the whole purpose of the Boulder Crest Foundation is again, you're in a helping role. And um, so it's not like that part of your life is going away. So how have you balanced that to be, I guess, to use your word more effective? So I was very lucky to have a friend that had given me a book called Struggle Well. Mm. Um, we had gone through NICO together and, you know, just gave me the book and said, Oh my gosh, you need to read this. You need to read this. You need to read this. I'm like, sure. Yeah, I'll get to it. You know, that and 50 other books that I want to read, you know, thanks, but yeah, sure. I'll get to it. And kept asking me, you know, Hey, have you read the book? Have you read the book? I'm like, no, I haven't read the book. You know, like I'll get to it. I'll get to it. COVID happened. I actually got the book on audible and listened to it. And that idea of post-traumatic growth, I kept on, you know, rewinding it. Oh my gosh. You know, this is all the work that I had been trying to do for so long, trying to figure out. And it kind of all came together in that funnel and was like, oh, this is it. Okay. I got this. So I ended up going through the Warrior Path program. Path stands for uh, progressive and alternative training for helping heroes. And that was in 2020. And that is when I think. I really started working on where I'm at today because, and, and, you know, just all the work that I've been trying to do, you know, on myself, it was one of the most unselfish things that we can do is to take care of ourselves. because when we are able, and whatever that right. looks like, but when we are able to take care of ourselves, we give ourselves that capacity to be able to sustainably and effectively be there for mm-hmm. others. Me, you know, pouring myself out, pouring myself out. I'm going to I'm going to help you. I'm going to do the things. Well, A, maybe some people don't want that. They need to figure out their own answers. And then B, if I'm, you know, constantly running on fumes, what what, you know, what good am I? Cuz I'm going to be burnt out, you know, continuously having this cycle. So, one of the things that we do talk about during the program is you know, here's all these wellness practices, you know, throughout your military career, here's another tool mm-hmm. for your toolbox, here are these tools for your toolbox, which is great in some circumstances, but what do we do with tools? We pull them out when things are broken right. and then we put them back away. And these wellness practices are these things that, okay, this is these things that I know that I do for myself 
that give me that capacity that increase, you know, my bandwidth, mm-hmm. so to speak, and give me that ability to sustainably and effectively be there for others because I'm filling up my own tank yeah. first. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your role and about the the foundation. So um, Boulder Crest Foundation is where I work. I'm the director of programs uh, here in Virginia. And it started, um, Ken Falk is our founder. He is um, retired Navy EOD Master Chief. And his vision was, um, you know, originally to provide that space for rest and reconnection, he and his wife, Julia, for members of the EOD community that after 9-11 were coming back, um, you know, spending long periods of time at Walter Reed. So being able to, you know, we're about an hour west of the DC area, uh, right in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And it was to give that chance for, you know, once stabilized, but for people to come out, get away from the hospital environment, because we know that, you know, that's not always the best for, you know, the, the our mental health and our mental right. wellness. Was being in that, you know, for months and sometimes years in that environment. So being able to get away, you know, reconnect with the families outside of that kind of environment, um, you know, beautiful, serene, rural setting. And, you know, it, it's just, it morphed from there. So now um, we, you know, we started there in Virginia. We now have Boulder Crest, Arizona. We have a mobile training team, Alpha and Bravo. And then we have another other partner organizations that already had their own nonprofit mission, but that have started to also offer the Warrior Path program, which is uh, a one-week program in person. We call it the initiation phase, but then it's a 90-day commitment. So it's not that catch and release. It is that, all right, you're here for a week because sometimes we need to get away from the noise of everyday life. You know, when's the last time that you even spent one day for yourself? Just focusing on your wellness. So that gives them that opportunity to, you know, have that space, focus on their wellness for one week, be part of a cohort, because that's something that we also say that we miss is that Mm -hmm. camaraderie, that team. And so the cohort that you go with, you're going through this 90 day journey, um, staying plugged in, holding each other accountable, supporting each other. But then you're also part of this larger network. You know, we have people not only across the nation, but there's folks that are, you know, in Australia and, you know, the UK that have gone through this program and are supporting each other, holding each other up and, and being there for each other. So it's a very organic community and it's, it's just fantastic. So we have uh, that, the Warrior Path program. We also offer, um, this, we still offer that rest and reconnection for families of combat veterans. Um, we have a military teen retreat. We have uh, songwriting with soldiers. We also um, offer Struggle Well program, which is more for... Um, it's a number of the things that we also talk about in Warrior Path, but it's more in like a conference type setting almost. Um, and that is a great part for the first responder community. And it's just, it's a very exciting time because we are also, um, we have, we're part of the Avalon Action Alliance. And in that network, we also have a number of TBI facilities, um, Marcus Institute for Brain Health, uh, the SHARE initiative down at Shepherd Center. We have, I mean, just, I think we have six, uh, seven TBI centers right now that we're part of in wow. the network and s- also substance use. So like Warrior's Heart down in uh, Texas, um, Forge um, in the New England area. And it's all based on that holistic mm-hmm. approach of taking care of the entire warrior, 
Um, and then that post idea of post-traumatic growth. We get fixated on that PTSD diagnosis, which is so limiting. PTG says, yes, trauma happened, 100%. And trauma doesn't care so much about specifics because trauma will rewire right. you. But we also know that, do, you know, just looking at like neuroplasticity, you know, those neurons that, that fire together, wire together. Well, if that's true, then that also means that, you know, with that intentional approach, that we can also train to mm-hmm. thrive. We don't have to just cope. We don't have to just survive. We can actually thrive. And that is a lot of what we, you know, talk about when we're talking about those practices. These aren't the tools. These are practices that that thing that I'm going to do on a regular basis to take care of myself so that I can thrive. Um, and that idea of post-traumatic growth is not just, you know, I can survive, but post-traumatic growth says, I cannot just survive, but I can thrive and not in spite of what I've gone through, but actually because of it. Yes. It is very exciting to hear about, I think, just that perspective. And it's all true, right? It's all based on science now that we know, right? Um, That's also a lot to carry, though, just knowing that um, there may be more applicants than positions available in the treatment programs. And how do you, um, you know, and having your own history as well, how do you stay motivated to continue to serve in this way? So what I do differently now from when, you know, before where it was just pour out for everybody, take care of all the people, other people need all the things more than I do, is I, I think one of the keywords is, you know, being present and intentionality. Mm-hmm. Slow the heck down. And, and paying attention to those things instead of compartmentalizing, you know, being curious about what, why, you know, what, what's going on? What, you know, if I'm feeling, you know, tired or if I'm feeling, you know, a little frayed around the edges, why is that? Instead of just, that means just go harder, you know, do, do more things, you know, make, <laughs> ignore the things. It's very much that, and also embracing the idea that I cannot take on someone else's burdens. Mm. It's, it's not mine to carry. It's actually almost rude of me to assume that I can do that right. for you. Yeah. Because I don't know where you came from. I don't know your path. I don't know your journey. I don't know what got you up to yeah. this point. What I can do is I can listen, I can be present, and I can walk mm. along beside you while you do your own work. And I can hold space yeah. for you. It's really that idea, you know, you, you hear about, you know, if you go and you see a uh, you know, the, the cocoon and they're trying to get out. And if you actually try to help, you know, that emerging butterfly or that, you know, baby chick trying to get out of the egg, if you go and try to help it out of its struggle, you're actually weakening its system because it's not allowing that, that, that thing to take their strength from mm-hmm. the struggle. Mm-hmm. And so to just, you know, take that concept and, and walk along beside these people. We, you know, I say often, you know, they're like, Oh, thank you so much. You know, you, you know, you did this. And I said, well, you right. did the work. We just simply have right. space for you. And that's when honoring that, uh, you know, everybody has that capability to do their own work, to find their own answers. How can we best hold space for each other and support mm-hmm. each other? Not so much taking on other people's things that we're not mine to take in the first place. <laughs> 
I'm just very intentionally doing what I need to do to take care of myself. And, you know, everybody's different. You know, what, what fills my, you know, tank, oh, yeah. so to speak, isn't, you know, going to, it's, you know, for me, it's, you know, meditation, it's a daily gratitude practice, it's getting out in nature, it's, you know, those things that I know that I need to do for right. me. Yeah. Okay, I have two more questions. One is just if people are interested in learning more about the Boulder Crest Foundation and everything that you guys are doing to serve those kind of military first responder law enforcement populations, how um, how can they find that information? So we have a, the website, bouldercrest.org. Um, we have, we're active on Facebook. There is uh, Boulder Crest Foundation. There is Boulder Crest, Virginia. There is... And, you know, send us an email, call us, um, come out for, you know, combat veterans can stay, you know, free of charge for two to seven days at our locations in Virginia and Arizona. Yeah. And it is, it's that chance to get to, you know, connect with your family. You can do as much or as little as you want, come out and check us out. And what I would say, you know, as a member of the help everybody else, (laughs) everybody needs this more than me club, um, but reforming is, I would strongly encourage people to check out the program yes. themselves. Yes. To be able to, you know, have that moment to take care of yourself so that you can sustainably and effectively be there for others, for this community, because this community does need your story. They do need to have you take care of yourself. Yeah. So good advice. And the last question I have for you is also going to require some advice um, from you for other people, but let's say that, someone listening to, you know, your story has connected with it. They know that they want to serve in some way unique to themselves, but they're just unsure about how or where to get started. What would your advice be for them? Reach out. Reach out. You know, so often we've lost so many people in this community. And, you know, coming from someone who also considered that option, we are not meant to live in that isolation and reaching out. And, and then just like I said, that, that idea of people sharing their stories, um, is it uncomfortable sometimes? Absolutely. Sometimes the strongest person in the room is the one who's willing to be honest because you then give everyone else in the room permission to say me too, and to share their stories. And so reaching out to others because how many times do we hear other people say, oh, we had no idea they were struggling. And it's, you know, after the fact, it's too late. We had no idea. I thought they were doing well, or we knew that something was wrong, but we didn't know how to help them. You know, ask those hard questions, have these hard conversations, because sometimes, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but it shows that you Mm -hmm. care. So reach not only, you know, if you are the one struggling, reach out to somebody, please. Um, because we need you. Our community needs you. We need you. You know, don't let that, you know, time of service be the last great thing we do. Use, you know, that, that life experience, use that struggle so that we can help each other and be there for each other. But then also, you know, if you notice someone struggling, reach out and have those hard conversations. You know, how many times when, you know, yeah, we're out of our comfort zone, or you might think, you know, what can I do? Well, if you even just get that person to talk, they right. feel heard, they feel seen. And then from there, maybe you don't have all the answers, but then reach out. Sometimes it's not even that somebody needs answers. 
they just need somebody to sit with them and, and listen and know that they're not alone. So. And yeah. I don't think it takes any qualifications to listen. Re- no, it, you know, <laughs> Brene, I love Brene Brown and I'm, I'm going to, this isn't a direct quote, obviously I'm definitely paraphrasing, but she asks, you know, Hey, have you ever experienced heartache? Have you ever experienced loss? Have you ever experienced, you know, disappointment? Yes. You know, it's part of the human experience. If the answer is yes, then you are uniquely qualified to sit with another human being and just be present and listen to them and support them. I love that. Yes. You already have all the qualifications you need. (laughs) Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Christine. And is there anything else you want to leave us with before we conclude this conversation? Uh, thank you so much for what you are doing. Thank you for, you know, the platform that you are, you know, giving. Thank you for your service. And then thank you for giving that, you know, continuing to serve by providing that platform for people to tell those stories for us to, you know, be able to connect with each other. And um, yeah, thank you so much for the, you know, your time and, and what you're doing. everybody. Thank you for joining us for another incredible episode of In the Name of Service. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. And of course, feel free to share with those you feel would like to be inspired. Have a difference maker in your life that you'd like to see featured? Reach out to Dr. Barb Thompson at in the name of service at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.